0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Our payload was calculated to a fraction of an ounce. Without his extra weight, we would have ducked the media storm automatically. Maybe and maybe not. Right now, we have to make a decision.
2: I'm not sure we should turn back, even if we can.
3: Look here. You people
2: volunteered for this expedition. I did not. I have no business being here. I demand to be taken back to Earth.
1: Don, do you have any idea of our present position? Not precisely. Maybe we can calculate it. Luckily, the
4: atomic clock is still working. It's nearly eight hours since takeoff.
0: Now, these vector tapes, they could be of help. Uh, I was afraid of
2: that.
4: What is it?
1: The tapes are damaged. Well, is there any way we can repair the inertial navigation system? I can try. But it means shutting off the artificial gravity for a while. All right, do it. Well, Patty. Now Alice, we're not going to have any gravity for a while, so we're all going to have to hang on. Oh, boy! Oh, boy.
4: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 19th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. Nowhere is that more significant than with mankind's expectations of space travel and eventual colonization of the moon and the planets. Resting right below the philosophical branch of metaphysics is the science of physics itself. And there have been some promising and optimistic developments in that field worth taking a look at. But after examining them closer, I don't think that most of us appreciate the gravity of our situation in all of these fields, and it is nature's force of gravity itself that is the theme of our discussion today. And that discussion begins right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justwritemedia.org. subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and, of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and, in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now, I've been a fan of science fiction shows ever since I was a kid. When sci-fi shows like our opener, Lost in Space, and others like Star Trek first began to make their appearances on commercial television. In science fiction and fantasy, anything is possible. Reality, however, has another opinion in this regard, and sometimes it appears even scientists tend to forget this fact. Gravity. We're going to kick off the show with some practical applications and descriptions of the nature of gravity as it may affect our very near future, and then progress to the grand scientific and philosophical view of gravity and its role in our universe, which by the way, we'll learn is not expanding, nor is that even a possibility, despite all of the silly entertainment and serious scientific theories you'll hear arguing the contrary. Now I had my attention attracted to an article in my local London Free Press written by Jessica Goddard under the headline A Hotel That's Out of This World Literally with the subhead The Von Braun is set to become the world's first commercial space station and it was published on September 7th of this year. Now my imagination immediately drifted to visions of 2001 a Space Odyssey and I quote Low gravity basketball Trampolining and rock climbing are some of the activities planned for what may become the first space hotel. The Von Braun Space Station by the Gateway Foundation, a California-based initiative for orbital habitats, is projected for completion in 2025. It's being called the first commercial space station. Eventually, going to space will just be another option people will pick for their vacation, just going on a cruise or going to Disney World, Tim Allator, senior design architect for the project, told London-based Denzine magazine. With artificial gravity, fully functioning kitchens and stylish interior design, the Von Braun is being designed to have the comforts of a cruise ship, including restaurants, bars, movies, and concerts. The experience is intended to be comfortable and luxurious, so visitors can expect that gravity won't be a problem. Guests will be able to drink water from Earth, shower in recycled water, and use toilets as they normally would. There's no word on the cost, (laughs) but expect the price to be like the view, dizzying. Gateway is selling company memberships that may include discounts according to its website. It also mentions plans to list on a stock market. The project's design is based on a rotating space wheel concept developed in the 1950s by aerospace engineer Werner von Braun. Building on the current International Space Station's technology, the von Braun concept is 190 meters in diameter and rotates to create a gravitational force comparable to the moon's, which is one-sixth of Earth's. The outer wheel will have 24 pod-like modules, each up to 500 square meters with varying dedicated functions, including some private residences. At any given time, the Gateway Foundation expects Devon Braun to host 400 people. When it opens, the plan is to have 100 tourists at the station per week. Now, this article is accompanied by a photo that makes the experience look very much like the environment we see portrayed on any given episode of Star Trek. ...aboard the various incarnations of the Enterprise... ...and its portrayed view of Earth is no different, I expect... ...than that experienced by the many astronauts who have been in orbital travel... ...but without the convenience of gravity. Consider that, according to this report, this project is projected for completion in 2025. Like, that's only roughly six years from now... ...and quite frankly, from what I've been discovering during my look into this promising tourist experience... I've become a bit skeptical, not only about the timeline, but about a lot of other factors that seem to have been utterly ignored in the public promotion of this venture. In many ways, I was reminded of the optimistic projections being made about the various trips to Mars, one way, no less, and as I looked closer at the possibilities, my own optimism about such ventures began to fade. Now the idea of a spinning spacecraft to compensate for the necessity of gravity seemed eminently reasonable to me. I myself have in the past viewed this kind of station, or even non-stationary construction, to be the only way in which mankind would eventually be able to venture beyond the planetary bodies like our moon. But after literally spending hours of watching various scientific and speculative YouTube presentations over the past week or so, Presentations related to this and even greater space travel possibilities, such as those most popularized by shows like Star Trek, I'm beginning to wonder if space travel of this nature will ever be possible for mankind, no matter how far that possibility is projected into the future. So let's begin our own journey into space with the following audio bite, taken from a February 18th, YouTube presentation by Scott Manley entitled A Realistic Look at the Gateway Foundation and the Von Braun Station, which itself does not yet address the gravity of the project. That topic will be addressed on the return side of our bumper from a January 9th Cool Worlds presentation hosted by Professor David Kipping. As you might expect, these audio bites have necessarily been severely edited for our own purposes, so be sure to check out the originals if you're so inclined. And by the time we return, I'm guessing that the gravity of our space travel challenges will begin to weigh you down in ways you may never before have contemplated.
2: Hello it's Scott Manley here. Now if you've ever seen 2001 you'll know that their vision of the future was, well, a little optimistic. They had magnificent space stations in low earth orbit and shuttles that would go all the way to the moon. But recently an organisation calling itself the Gateway Foundation has been putting out some great videos showing their vision of a giant wheel-like station rotating in orbit. They've been selling the idea about the possibilities for tourism, for science, for part of a giant space infrastructure that we all want to live in. But I'm not really convinced. Now obviously they're calling it the Von Braun station. Von Braun originally presented this idea back in the 1950s in his Disney show showing how he envisioned the future of going to space. It had this giant wheel and it had shuttles that would take hundreds of flights to build this. Uh, the Gateway Foundation is also related to another group called uh, Orbital Assembly. It's actually the same staff with the same website, but one, Orbital Assembly is all about developing the technology to build stuff in low Earth orbit, whereas Gateway Foundation is all about selling the idea So anyway, their vision of a space station would take hundreds of launches. It would be 488 meters across with a 78 meter wide hull. It would have a crew of 150 and be able to accommodate 1250 guests around the rim and in the core. For comparison though, the National Space Society also has a goal of a spinning station as one of their milestones. Theirs is much more modest, 100 meters across. This is barely a sketch, and while I do believe these people are definitely interested in doing this, they're certainly a long way from having a finished design, and nor would you expect them to have a finished design at this point. Their video also shows that every crew section on the output side would have an escape vehicle, which is important, you know, you don't want to be stuck on a space station when something's going wrong. But look, the truth is, there's just simply not enough technical detail to do any real hard analysis of this and nor would we necessarily expect the technical detail at this point but what does worry me is the funding mechanism. Last year but in April they tried to do a Kickstarter to raise fifty thousand dollars to make a high quality video about their orbital construction drones and on their subreddit they misspelled Kickstarter but yeah the stretch goal included if they reach five hundred thousand, that would be to build one of these prototypes and then if they got above 750k they would lot they would try to make one that they could put into space okay you know let, let's not worry about that but the big selling thing right the, the kickstarter didn't work it failed and got only 10k but they talk about this lottery concept and it does seem so seductive that yes lotteries raise billions of dollars all around the world The problem is that lotteries are actually illegal. They do actually say in one of their videos that they would need to get the law changed uh, and they talk about the initiatives process. This is where, you know, an interested group of people say we would like this thing to be in the law and if they get a certain number of signatures it goes on the ballot and then it gets uh, signed into law if it gets voted in. And California is one of these states that does this and then that assumes that people actually want to play the lottery and all that. I would be a little wary of this. I would be very wary of this. But that doesn't automatically mean that it's a scam. It doesn't mean that it, that these people are being malicious. It just means that they they've got their big future and they want their big future and that's okay to get excited about that. And you know, I hope they do find some like minded billionaires that throw enough money at them for to fly to space and then they can laugh at me and say, "Hi, hey, you're not getting on, you're skeptic." That would be a fantastic outcome as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm all for the giant big space station in space.
0: Gravity. It's what keeps us held to the surface of the earth and provides a sense of up and down. When we venture into space and orbit the Earth or some of the world, the force of gravity precisely cancels out with the centrifugal force. The sudden and stark absence of any forces acting upon your body is known as weightlessness. Your body has literally entered a state of perpetual and stomach-churning freefall. Most humans can adapt to this nausea after a few unpleasant hours but many biological functions of our body are hardwired for gravity thanks to billions of years of evolution here on the earth. The muscles used for standing posture and skeletal support are no longer used and thus atrophy losing up to 20 percent of their mass after a week. If we want to live in space for years or decades without severe medical interventions or genetic modification, some form of artificial gravity is going to be needed. In science fiction, artificial gravity is ubiquitous, mostly to save money on special effects. The explanation for this is usually something like gravity plating, a wholly fictional technology. But how could we Do this for real. The simplest way to create artificial gravity in the real world is just to accelerate in a straight line. If you were inside a spacecraft that was not just moving but accelerating at one G, your inertia, which is to say your resistance to motion, causes you to be pushed against the back wall with the same force as that which the earth pulls you down right now. In fact, Einstein postulated that the effect is so similar that there is no experiment you could possibly do on board that spacecraft to distinguish between being in a gravitational field versus just accelerating in other words inertial mass and gravitational mass are equal something famously known as the equivalence principle in general relativity. This sounds promising, but accelerating at 1G for months, years or decades would require engines with vastly greater sustainable thrust than any modern space vehicle. The N-star iron thruster is probably the closest example we've ever built of such an engine. NASA's Dawn spacecraft, which visited Vesta and Ceres, used three Xenon iron thruster engines to sustain a record-breaking constant acceleration of just under 10 millionths of a G. It was an impressive technological feat, but it is a long way off providing useful artificial gravity. Is there any other way of generating artificial gravity then? The only other proven physics to do this is rotation. These forces are what physicists call fictional. Like the case of linear acceleration, they are just the products of our inertia. They are not fundamental like electromagnetism, for example. Your body's matter will not change velocity unless acted upon by a force and so if the aircraft around you moves to one side you will not because of inertia and so you find yourself slammed into the wall. An architect has two basic dials that they can control in designing a centrifugal artificial gravity structure. These are the rate of rotation omega and the radius of rotation r. Clearly to reduce cost we would like to use the smallest r possible since surface area and thus cost should scale roughly linearly with this term. As we make r smaller, we need to spin the habitat faster in order to recreate the required gravity. This is because the centripetal acceleration equals r multiplied by omega squared, thus making the habitat four times smaller in diameter requires a spin rate twice as fast. Even ignoring the effect on human occupants, rapid spin rates are generally non-desirable. A 17 meter radius habitat rotating at very fast rates would indeed mimic Earth-like gravity if the occupants were completely stationary inside. But any movement inside and they would feel an additional force that we do not notice here on the Earth the Coriolis effect. Artificial gravity of a centrifuge is not the same as that of linear acceleration. Recall that Einstein argued that linear acceleration is indistinguishable from gravitational acceleration but this is not true for a centrifuge. Like the centrifugal force this is what physicists would refer to as a fictional force, purely a product of living in a rotating frame of reference. Imagine a cannonball floating around the center of a rotating O'Neill cylinder. If we were watching this happen from the outside of the cylinder, through a window, say, it would seem to travel in a straight line, which of course makes perfect sense. But now consider the same motion from the perspective of a person on the inner surface of the cylinder. From their perspective, the cannonball does not travel in a straight line, but rather curves. But by far the most destabilizing aspect for human occupants would be a tipping effect caused by the Coriolis acceleration. Dr. Theodore Hall developed a nice way to visualize this by imagining dropping or throwing a ball vertically. Rather than landing at your feet, it would curve to the side. In extreme cases, one can even throw a ball behind you and catch it in front as it whips around due to the Coriolis. Coriolis isn't just a problem for climbing ladders or standing up, it affects your balance even by turning your head from side to side. When you do this, the inertia of the vestibular fluid inside your inner ear causes a slight delay between the motion of your head and the fluid within it. The fluid is then pushed back into place by pressure causing movement of sensory hair cells within the ear. Now if we do this on board a rotating spacecraft, Moving your head in one direction would lead to an increased downward force versus the other. That would slightly change the distribution of fluid inside the semicircular canals. This differential gravity may confuse our vestibular system and create a sense of nausea and sickness. The fluid itself also undergoes a small amount of vertical motion and thus would be pushed to one side by the tipping Coriolis effect. This raises the question as to how fast a rotation can we cope with before this becomes a problem and occupants experience nausea. In most proposals of rotating habitat, it is these effects of the coriolis on the vestibular system, sometimes called canal sickness, which most strongly constrain the engineering design. And now it becomes clear why previously proposed rotational habitats need to be so vast and thus expensive. Wow.
4: I'm getting dizzy just considering these various gravitational effects on the human body. And they don't call it artificial gravity without reason. It is not real gravity. Artificial gravity, as was described, is a fictional force. This is a very apt term, especially when considered in the light of our upcoming examination of what and how real, non-fictional gravity works in the grander scheme of our universe. But everything we just heard was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of considering all of the challenges and obstacles that would have to be overcome to spend any meaningful time on a rotating space station, especially one that is only offering a G-force comparable to that of the moon. This would not be a trip for your average cruise ship kind of tourist. Only the young and extremely healthy need apply, in, in, in my humble opinion. Now you might have noticed that Scott Manley's description of the Gateway Project offered some stats and observations that were a bit different from those that I read in the newspaper, especially in terms of numbers of people to be accommodated. So you can probably assume that not all of the details of this project have been finalized, or perhaps consistently communicated. And even there, the financing and method of construction, mostly by robots and unmanned spacecraft, remains to be a task yet undertaken. But I wouldn't object if we were all pleasantly surprised to see it all come together, even within the next decade. But gravitational phenomena like the Coriolis effect, as well as other survival issues that tend to be glossed over with regard to a space station in Earth's orbit, are small potatoes when it comes to another spacefaring project we keep hearing about. The various planned manned missions to Mars. I have in the past on this show considered these planned missions to Mars to be kind of a suicide mission, particularly those privately funded efforts intended to achieve this end within a similar kind of time frame as that of the rotating tourist space station. Now, I'm apparently not alone in my assessment of this endeavor, and with that thought in mind, we're going to go to our next bumper break right now and listen to Joe Scott, who asks the question... Could you really survive a trip to Mars? And again, this is just a sampling of all the problems and challenges he cites that must be overcome in order to facilitate a survivable trip to Mars. And gravity certainly plays a huge part of this. And when we return, on the other side of the bumper, we will turn our attention to the Big Bang Theory of Creation versus the Steady State Theory of the Universe.
5: So you want to go to Mars, do you? You want to be the... Neil Armstrong of the Red Planet? Wanna have schools named after you? Wanna be a trivia question in bars for decades? Well, congratulations and thank you. The world needs more people like you. And by that I mean absolute lunatics with a total disregard for their own life. Going to Mars is hard. And look, I get the frustration that we haven't been to Mars yet. I was born on the heels of Apollo and I grew up totally believing that we would be going to Mars at some point in my lifetime. Now look how gray this beard is. I mean, come on people, get a move on. But no, seriously, the moon is 250,000 miles away. Mars is 34 million miles away at its absolute closest point. That's 136 times further. There are, of course, plans in the works, with SpaceX suggesting they could get there in their Starship vehicle by 2024. Meanwhile, NASA's focusing on the moon with the Artemis program to try to establish a moon base there and then using that as a way station to Mars sometime in the 2030s. But why, you may be asking, go there at all? Why would you ask that? What's wrong with you? You could pin it on our natural human need to explore. You could say that we're running out of space and resources here and we need to set something up somewhere else. You could say that until we become a multi-planetary species we will always be in danger of extinction and we absolutely will go extinct when the sun goes red giant. All these arguments have been made. But here's the thing about Mars, and every other planet in the universe for that matter. It's not Earth. Earth is the egg inside which we were formed. We evolved here over billions of years to be perfectly adapted to this one planet in its infinitely specific conditions. Everything else in the universe wants to kill us. Seriously though, go outside. Point up at the sky. You can go like 8 kilometers that direction. Everything beyond that, for 93 billion light years until you reach the very end of space and time, will kill you. Could you even survive a trip to Mars? Like, seriously, what kind of toll would this take on the human body? Is it something that you could even survive? And if you do, what kind of long lasting effects would it have? Look, take off your spacesuit in space, you die. Take off your spacesuit on Mars, you die. Don't fool yourself. Being on Mars is being in space. Just with ground. First of all, your head swells in space. On Earth, gravity is constantly pulling your blood down towards your feet, so we have evolved to push blood up into our head. So when you're in zero-g, you just have this constant overpressurization of blood rushing to your head. It can also lead to sinus pressure, which can be painful and lead to breathing problems. But perhaps the side effect that bothers NASA scientists the most in terms of the pressure in the head is that it distorts your vision. Even more distressing is that some studies have shown that the immune system actually becomes weaker when you're in weightlessness, and on top of that, bacteria actually become more virulent when they're weightless. Meaning the longer you're in space, the more vulnerable you are to disease. And astronauts are also subjected to higher levels of CO2 when they're in weightless conditions, because even though there are CO2 filters, say, in the space station, when they exhale, because of zero gravity, it just kind of pools around your head. And increased inhalation of CO2 can lead to cognitive effects, like a decline in decision-making and problem-solving. But the biggest bugaboo is bone loss, which is something that space agencies have been aware of for quite some time now. Our connection with the ground, every single time we take a step, that sends a signal through our bodies to put calcium into our bones to strengthen and rebuild them. Even just sitting upright in normal gravity causes your muscles to kind of tighten around your bones and applies a little bit of force there. Without any of that in space, your body stops reinforcing your bones and it starts filtering your calcium through your kidneys, which can lead to kidney stones, which are fun. Now most of these, up to this point, there are solutions for. Fans can blow the CO2 around, glasses can correct for vision, supplements can deal with the calcium situation, and of course regular exercise can prevent bone loss. But perhaps the biggest one is radiation exposure. Astronauts on the ISS receive 10 times the normal amount of radiation. And they're inside the Earth's magnetic shield. Passengers on a trip to Mars would be exposed to much greater radiation for a much longer period of time, and that's not just solar radiation, but also cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are much higher energy particles, usually protons and neutrons, that can do a lot more damage to DNA. And it's a lot harder to shield from than solar wind. And astronauts are going to be exposed to that for nine months, just to get to Mars. So let's just say everything goes perfectly, and you survive re-entry, and you survive landing, and you get to be on Mars. Then what? Well, when space station astronauts and cosmonauts come home from the ISS, they're usually so weak and discombobulated from their time in zero gravity that a whole landing crew assembles to physically carry them to ground transportation. And this is after only six months on the ISS. That ground crew is not going to be waiting for you on Mars.
1: For most of human existence, the question of how everything began is one that only religion dared to answer. But with Edwin Hubble's discovery that the universe is expanding, some scientists begin to believe that they too might have something to offer. Their reasoning goes something like this. If the universe is expanding, then in the past, it must have been smaller. Go far enough back, and everything must have been crunched together at a point of infinite density our universe began they suggest when that point exploded creating the expansion we still see today this vision comes to be called the big bang theory of creation at the start of the nineteen sixties scientists are equally divided between this big bang theory and a competing notion that the universe is eternal called the steady state theory but there's no real hard evidence for either one in fact almost no one expects the debate Will ever be resolved. Bob Wilson plans to use this microwave antenna to study our galaxy. He doesn't believe in the Big Bang, but prefers a universe with no beginning or end.
4: I like the steady state. It is philosophically satisfying because there's no end to the universe in the future. It, it goes on forever in the same sort of state that it is. And there's no beginning for it either. Uh, So physicists generally like steady state because they, they don't like to have to have a time beyond which they can't know anything.
1: Wilson and Penzias believe the Holmdel antenna will make a great radio telescope because it's designed to reject all extraneous signals or noise. But from the very first time they use it, extraneous noise is exactly what it seems to be picking up.
4: Every time we started up, we saw the same noise level. Everywhere in the sky we pointed, uh, we saw the same noise level.
1: Desperate, they begin calling other astronomers for help. And one suggests calling Bob Dickey.
4: The phone rang, and Bob picked it up. And it was two guys from Bell Labs who had a problem, which at first didn't seem to have anything to do with us. We didn't learn very much on the telephone, but they agreed to come out and see what we had done and tell us about what they had in mind. Uh, He hung up the phone, and I'll never forget exactly what he said. These are his exact words. He said, well, boys, we've been scooped.
1: Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias had already heard the echo of the Big Bang. Their annoying background noise was, in fact, nothing less than a whisper from creation itself. in the beginning some 15 billion years ago the universe exploded from a single point less than one minute later it's a million billion miles across if everything in the universe began in a single point it's hard not to wonder what it took to go from such ultimate simplicity to all of this Many physicists believe that at the beginning of time, there was only a single particle governed by a single force. From that starting point, within a tiny fraction of a second, particles like protons and electrons evolved, and forces like gravity and magnetism came into being. But did the universe have to be like this? Could it have turned out any other way? Perhaps, if we can work back to the moment of creation, to that ultimate particle and force, we will come to understand why the universe is the way it is, and even to express it in what physicists call the final theory, which its hopes can be captured in a single equation that can fit on a t-shirt. This may explain everything.
4: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And I've said it before and I'll say it again now. The Big Bang Theory is an absurdity. It is self-contradictory at every stage of its explanation. On the other hand, the brief reference we heard to the steady state theory, which in this entire lengthy science odyssey, Mysteries of the Universe, narrated by Charles Osgood and viewed by 4.5 million people on YouTube, only mention that theory within the confines of that brief audio bite you just heard. The rest of the documentary focused on all of the varying and confused theories based on the assumption of a Big Bang and an assumed subsequent expansion of our entire universe. Now, first, to the point that Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding. I recall receiving an email from listener Conrad Ranzan back in 2009, who wrote to me, quote, Edwin Hubble did not discover that the universe is expanding. The following excerpt is taken from Physics Essays Journal. There was no award given for what has been called the discovery of the expansion of the universe, and rightfully so, for no such discovery was ever made. Edwin Hubble, on whose behalf the claim is often made, did not discover the expansion of the universe. He discovered a redshift versus distance relationship for distant galaxies. The greater the galaxy's distance, the longer the wavelength of its light. To extrapolate this variation into proof of the expansion of the whole universe is pure speculation. Nevertheless, when modern astrophysics gets its act together, it will belatedly recognize that Edwin Hubble's rightful claim is for the discovery of the expansion of ether space. And that was written by Conrad Ranzan in 2009. We'll return to this observation and to the whole concept of ether a little later on. But getting back to what we just heard, then there's this ridiculous statement. If the universe is expanding, then in the past the universe must have been smaller. Far enough back, everything was crunched into a point of infinite density, says the narrator. Well, really? How can anyone take an idea like that seriously? First of all, if there is such a thing as a point... It is made up of something, not of nothing or non-existence, and it must occupy a position in some given space somewhere in order to even be considered a point. Infinite density? I mean infinite, really? Infinite means no beginning and no end, and it also means that some thing obviously exists, a thing of infinite density. And what does this density consist of? of everything that exists in our observable universe and beyond I mean give your head a shake in the beginning some 15 billion years ago he says but wait a minute in the beginning what beginning haven't you already told us that there already existed an infinite density point didn't that have a beginning or are you not considering that in your in your story here contradictions galore And then he says, many physicists believe that at the beginning of time, okay, it's time they're talking about, hmm, there was only a single particle governed by a single force from that starting point within a tiny fraction of a second, end quote. So apparently, the beginning being referred to is the beginning of time itself, which nevertheless... ...could have its creation measured in terms of time, as in a tiny fraction of a second. How the hell did they ever determine something like that? I mean, you have to make something like that up. And then to dismiss the opposing steady-state theory by arguing that, quote, ...there's no real hard evidence for either one, meaning either the Big Bang Theory or the steady-state theory, ...is a form of evasion and denial that no self-respecting scientist should ever accept if he or she accepts either theory at all. In all of the philosophical discussions about the nature and the age of the universe, I think two key epistemological concepts continually seem to get confused, and that is the idea of the universe and the idea of existence itself. And before any discussion can ensue on the nature of the universe, we have to determine if the universe is all that there is, and if so, then the term the universe implies existence itself. It's everything. The two terms would be interchangeable. But with theories of an expanding universe and the Big Bang Theory, it is implied that something outside the universe quote-unquote exists, and therefore that the universe is an entity distinct and separate from that existence itself. Existence, therefore, is far more than the universe under this way of thinking. Under the Big Bang theory, there must be some other kind of universe into which the universe released by the Big Bang expands into. does Doesn't that make sense? In attempting to understand the nature of the universe, and despite their knowledge and insights about the physical laws in play, most scientists run into a dead end. Or, or maybe I should say, a dead beginning, since at the heart of the investigation, in my humble opinion, lie some philosophical assumptions that contradict the whole axiom of existence. Remember that statement? Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? Well, religion and science alike have both originated their views of existence on the basis of the idea that at some time in the distant past, there was nothing. And out of that nothing, and here we mean non-existence, something came into existence. They never put it in these terms, however, thus avoiding the word existence and conflating that with the word universe. Even the Big Bang Theory is said to have originated from a singularity, which is a something... And which still begs the question, what something did the energy and matter from the Big Bang expand into? This represents a contradiction, which is evidence of an error. And we have no evidence whatsoever that nothing, as in non-existence, is even a possibility. Existence exists, concluded Ayn Rand in a philosophical declaration that we refer to as an axiom. And an axiom is something that has no cause in the sense that we understand that word. An axiom just is because there is no alternative. Another way to refer to the axiom of existence is, and we've heard it before, the supreme being. Meaning, of course, the being of all things, known and unknown, past, present, future, and as opposed to the idea of non-being or non-existence. Now, this has to be distinguished from the philosophical law of identity, wherein the idea of non-existence is applied to an identified element, person, thing, or entity that has previously existed within the universe but no longer does, or that may potentially exist but does not do so in the present. It requires a cause, or perhaps more specifically an action or process, to change the identity of something that exists into something else that exists ashes to ashes and dust to dust but in between those two existent identities another identity did exist now the laws of causality such as we intuitively understand them demand that everything that exists was in some way or another caused by something that existed prior in time and within the universe Since the universe is infinite, both in size and existence, and we'll get into that later, the idea of an expanding universe is meaningless and contradictory. There is no place, no quote-unquote where, for the universe to expand into. But within the universe, it is accurate to say that space expands and contracts, something no one is saying except advocates of the steady state theory. Advocates like Conrad Ranzan, whose brilliant essay, The Dynamic Steady State Universe, appeared in Physics Essays, Volume 27, Number 2, back in 2014. Now, I happen to personally know Conrad, and he's a big fan of Just Right. So much so, that a link to Just Right's website appears at the bottom of his own website, www.cellularuniverse.org where you can find regular updates providing all that supposedly non-existent evidence that demonstrates and supports the idea of a dynamic, steady-state universe and fully rejects any notions of Big Bangs and an expanding universe. Why is this site called www.cellularuniverse.org? Well, in his conclusion to the physics essay just mentioned, he wrote, quote, Let me conclude by drawing a thought-provoking comparison between the study of life and the study of the universe, between biology and cosmology. The pillar of modern biology is the cellular organization of all living things. What about the pillar of modern cosmology? Sadly, the cosmology currently practiced by academia is distinctly not modern cosmology. Academia is teaching and practicing 20th century cosmology whose pillar, resting on a foundation of evolutionary chaos, is Einstein's incomplete theory of gravity. Modern cosmology begins with the realization that the universe is intrinsically, cellularly ordered. End quote. Now, by no means does Mr. Ranzan dismiss the invaluable contributions to physics made by Einstein, and in fact employs Einstein's own theories in confirming the steady-state theory of the universe. But before getting into that... Here's an item I found in the Globe Mail on September 13th, with the heading, Universe could be two billion years younger than previously thought, study suggests, written by Seth Borenstein from the Associated Press. Quote, The universe is looking younger every day, it seems. New calculations suggest the universe could be a couple billion years younger than scientists now estimate, and even younger than suggested by two other calculations published this year that trimmed hundreds of millions of years from the age of the cosmos. We have a large uncertainty for how the stars are moving in the galaxy, said N. G. of the Max Planck Institute in Germany, lead author of the study in the journal Science. Scientists estimate the age of the universe by using the movement of stars to measure how fast it is expanding. If the universe is expanding faster, that means it got its current size more quickly and therefore must be relatively younger. Dr. G. used a concept called gravitational lensing, But Dr. G's approach is only one of a few new ones that have led to different numbers in recent years, reopening a simmering astronomical debate of the 1990s that had been seemingly settled. Dr. G and outside experts had big caveats for her number, and so her margin of error is so large that it's possible the universe could be older than calculated, not dramatically younger. Harvard Astronomy Avi Loeb, who wasn't part of the study, said, It's difficult to be certain of your conclusions if you use a ruler that you don't fully understand, Professor Loeb said in an email, (laughs) end quote. Well, that last sentence says it all. It's long past time to shut the door on these ridiculous Big Bang theories and the expansion of a universe that is already an infinite reality.
2: Position. Calculating it, sir. Data, what do you read
1: over there? Malfunction. I trust.
3: Position,
0: Mr. LaForge.
3: Well, sir, according to these calculations, we've not only left our own galaxy, but passed through two others, ending up on the far side of Triangulum. The galaxy known as M33.
0: That's not possible. Data, what distance have we traveled? Two million, seven hundred thousand light
1: years, sir. I can't accept that. You must, sir. Our comparisons show it to be completely accurate. And I calculate that at
3: maximum warp, sir, it would take over 300 years to get home. In November 2012, NASA astronomers observed a new galaxy named MACS 0647JD. This galaxy, despite being smaller than the Milky Way, was one of the most intriguing we have ever discovered and was only revealed thanks to an amazing natural phenomenon. The galaxy was picked up using NASA's Hubble telescope and also the Spitzer telescope but was only made possible by a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. This occurs when the photons emitted from a luminous object are bent and warped by the gravity of a massive object, usually a galaxy. In this case however, MACS's light was magnified by not just an intercepting galaxy but by an entire galaxy supercluster. As such, MACS 0647JD remains the farthest galaxy we have ever observed. With an estimated distance of about 13.3 billion light-years from Earth, it verges on the very edge of the universe, or does it? We live in a vast open dimension with an estimated age of just under 14 billion years old. We know this because the oldest visible light we have ever observed is around this age. The furthest light we can see in the universe makes up the boundaries of what we perceive as the observable universe. Even if the universe was expanding at the speed of light, the observable universe should only have a maximum diameter of just under 28 billion light years based on its age. And yet. Given our estimations of redshift, it seems as if our own observable universe is as voluminous as to be over three times that size, at around 93 billion light-years in diameter. What lies at the edge of, or indeed beyond, the convoluted boundaries of this observable universe is still a mystery, but there's an even bigger one lurking beyond the twilight curtain. Thanks to our redshift analysis, we know that some galaxies, including MACS0647JD, are receding away from us at a rate faster than the speed of light. While their oldest light is still being emitted and is only just reaching us, we now know that these galaxies have since disappeared over the cosmic horizon, and these parts of space will never be reachable again. But how can this be? Why has the universe expanded faster than the speed of light? Why are distant galaxies receding away from us in the first place, and furthermore why are they speeding up as they go to beyond light speed velocities? It's not impossible to look out at the night sky and wonder, why are so many facts of astrophysics seemingly challenged when we begin to look towards the edge of the void? Well that's a good
4: question, as asked on a YouTube presentation by C, entitled Beyond the Cosmic Horizon. And according to Conrad Ranzan, quote, distant galaxies are not necessarily receding, and they only appear to be receding if one uses the Doppler interpretation of the redshift. However, it is true that the higher the redshift associated with a galaxy, the greater is its distance from us." End quote. Now when we look up into the sky at night, between what we can visibly see, the stars and the planets, exists what we call space. And space appears to be a void, a vacuum in which nothing seems to exist. But space actually is a something. A something that unfortunately scientists have dismissed even as they indirectly acknowledge its existence. That something was referred to as the ether. The following is taken from Conrad Ranzan's essay The Dynamic Steady State Universe which by the way you can download in its entire 33 page PDF format from his site www.cellularuniverse.org and I quote Quantum Mechanics is the foremost theory of the atomic and subatomic realm. However, as physicist Robert K. Adair wrote in The Great Design, quote, Einstein and others felt that quantum mechanics, although an accurate description of nature, must be an approximation to some more fundamental concept. End quote. Einstein, in his now famous lecture presented at Leiden University in 1920, made it quite clear that ether exists. Quote, According to the general theory of relativity, space is endowed with physical qualities. In the sense, therefore, there exists an ether. End quote. But Einstein told us precious little about the ether's qualities. He mainly told us what ether was not. Quote, the ether of the general theory of relativity is a medium. Which is itself devoid of all mechanical and kinematical qualities. End quote. This simply means that it cannot resist the motion of objects, and it cannot itself have momentum. At the end of the lecture, Einstein underscores the key point of what ether is not quote, But this ether may not be thought of as endowed with the quality characteristic of ponderable media. End quote. Einstein is, in effect, stating that the ether is a non-material and non-energy medium. Take note, the ether, and this includes its discrete units, possesses no mass and no energy. There is a strange historical irony here. The young, somewhat rebellious Einstein in 1905 rejected the notion of ether, while the mature Einstein in 1920 fully acknowledged the existence of ether. Strangely, the 1905 view is popularly embraced, while the 1920 view is ignored. The 1905 paper is adopted as sacred scripture, while the message of the 1920 Leyden lecture is deemed heresy. This is most comical to observe, but truly disturbing when it obstructs the advance of physics. Science has been trying to reinvent the ether for over a hundred years. Witness the various kinds of property endowing fields and vacuum energies that have been proposed. The real controversy most likely is in actually daring to use the term ether in the context of a serious theory. Astronomers of the 1920s in their investigations of deep cosmic space discovered that the space medium, the ether, expands. The discovery was a historically pivotal event, but then what followed formed the seed of a shockingly unnatural cosmology. Not long after the redshift evidence was properly interpreted as being the consequence of space medium expansion, the experts abandoned sound scientific practice. They took the additional step of interpreting the redshift of the distant galaxies as evidence of actual recessional motion of those galaxies. A motion attributed, of course, to the expansion of the intervening space medium. Essentially, the academics took the concept of expansion of ether and extrapolated it into the fanciful expansion of the entire universe. This outrageously unscientific extrapolation has devastated modern cosmology. It is the root cause of what is being called the preposterous universe. It is considered as such by the experts themselves. Now stop and think of what it means to blow up the universe, the infinite universe. Returning to our own construction, we adopt the reasonable interpretation that space-medium expansion is a regional phenomenon, balanced by regional contraction, and the obvious choice as the location where such expansion occurs is the central region of the cosmic voids. Quote. Now I actually recall discussing this very view with Conrad during a telephone conversation we had a few years back. The point to be taken here is that this ethereal space both expands and contracts, which tends to explain a lot about a theory called a steady-state theory. On page 27 of Conrad's essay is a chapter called The Ultimate Test, a philosophical test, and is briefly summarized in these sentences, although in the original essay much more is said, A philosophically sound understanding of the real universe requires that when we apply a verb to it, we really have one and only one choice. We must say, the universe is. However, one cannot apply an action verb or a verbal to the universe. One cannot say the universe begins. One cannot say the universe inflates. One cannot say the universe expands. One cannot say the universe evolves. One cannot say the universe changes in cycles. Such constructions are technically flawed and philosophically untenable, The ontological truth is, the universe is, period. A cosmology model fails when it attempts to comply with the limited existence principle by treating the universe itself as a thing, and demanding of it a beginning and an ending. Although the universe is perpetual, all things within the universe must have a time-wise beginning and an ending. In other words, what exists must have come into existence and will in the finite future not exist. Likewise, what existed in the distant past now no longer exists. In this sense, the universe is continually coming into existence while simultaneously extinguishing existence. It is in this way that the universe is. The universe is perpetual. It is infinite in its temporal duration. What all of physics to date has assumed is that mass itself is some kind of addition of material to empty space. However, in the conduction-absorption-annihilation theory, mass is the opposite. Mass is the macro effect resulting from the removal of ethereal entities of the space medium. The dynamic steady-state universe discards the unsubstantiated dark matter, abandons the gluon and the graviton, makes the Higgs mass acquisition concept redundant, and repudiates the wild notion of an exploding universe." Quote. Now, wrap your heads around that one. Again, I encourage you all to check out Conrad's website, where you can find all of his explanations, see the mathematical calculations, and the myriad of references to other mathematicians and physicists, who have in some way, through their own work, contributed to the steady-state theory, in a way that's pretty understandable and far less mind-boggling than the Big Bang theories. And when it comes to what the process of actual gravity is, according to dynamic steady-state universe theory, quote, With this single process, we simultaneously explain how and why the ether, quote-unquote, flows into matter. It is the process that eluded Newton, Tesla, and Einstein, and many others, the causal mechanism of gravitation. It is this very process that links the photon, the carrier of the electromagnetic effect, to gravitation. Every gravitating body has an enveloping inflow of ether, ether that is required to sustain the very existence of the mass and energy contained therein, end quote. Now, taking into consideration the cellular structure of the universe as described under the Dynamic Steady State Universe Theory, Conrad Ranzan and his descriptions of the processes and forces involved therein go a long way towards describing the real nature of our universe and the nature of gravity. Again, you can check it all out for yourself online at www.cellularuniverse.org. If there's one singular lesson to be learned from all of this, It's that before mankind ventures out into deeper space and towards the planets, we must be assured that the knowledge at our disposal to do so is just right. And with that thought in mind, be sure to join us for our next adventure when next week we will once again continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then.
3: Everything will be alright Hey, what's happening, bud?
1: I'm about to perform some personality surgery on Mr. Rimmer. He's getting a new personality? Great idea. (laughs) Not new. Moulded, tightened, lifted, shaped. This
2: is going to transform me. I'm going to be the lady-melting, enormous, bald stud muffin I've always dreamt of.
4: <laughs>
2: right, one thing. This isn't going to hurt, is it?
3: There'll just be the slightest, infinitesimally tiny little scratch. Scratch? Well,
1: when I insert the laser. Laser? Well, it has to burn. Burn? Well, perhaps I should give you a hollow sedative, sir. With a needle? Sir, please. I'll talk you through every aspect of the procedure, step by step. Right now, I'm just in that. But well, where's he
0: gone? Go left.
1: If Einstein was wrong. It is possible to break the speed of light. <laughs>